Well, I think I need to bring a, a greeting. Well, first off, open your Bible to Genesis 38, please. Open your Bible to Genesis 38. I want to bring a greeting to those of you who are here uh, from this weekend's Expositores Conference. We had a conference for uh, Spanish language friends and pastors, and uh, it was a smash success. They had a conference on the Holy Spirit, and if you're here from, from that, uh, bienvenidos, me llamo es John MacArthur. No, in fact, lo siento, Joe MacArthur is not going to be with us today. Uh, he has a little bit of a bug. He's fine. Uh, he's resting, and he asked me to fill in for him, and it's, of course, an honor and a privilege to do so. So as you open your Bible to Genesis 38, Genesis 38, uh, I'm just coming back from a trip to Texas. I took my son and preached this chapter at a church. I was assigned to this chapter, and... Uh, it just really ministered to me. It's an, it's an odd chapter, a chapter that's, uh, I mean, if you're familiar with Judah and Tamar, if you're not, you will be in a moment. It's full of, of all kinds of kind of horrifying, sinful stuff. And it, it reminds me somewhat of my, my time in, in Texas with my son. He's 12 years old. We went hunting for doves and we went fishing. He caught 28 catfish. And I, that means I cleaned 28 catfish, which is not how I normally spend a week in, in Los Angeles. Um, not everybody likes catfish, kind of the murky bottom feeder that it is. Uh, my dad called with a, he doesn't like catfish, he called with a catfish recipe though, and I'll share it with you. Uh, he said the best way is to get the catfish and nail it to a board and then put it in a smoker for a really, really long time, longer than you think, and then you take it out of the smoker, you take the catfish off the board, you throw the catfish in the trash and eat the board. <laughs> so, Genesis 38 is a bit of a catfish by appearance. It's a chapter that I think most Bible readers would say, I'm gonna just kind of throw this one aside. There's nothing tasty here. It's ribald, it's purient, it's, there's a lot in this text that's not exactly what you'd consider helpful devotional reading. But I want to remind you at the outset that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable, useful for teaching, reproof, correction, so that the man of God would be well-equipped for every good work. And so God has a message for us in Genesis 38. And let me begin just by reading you this, this fascinating chapter. And then I, I'm gonna ask the Lord to really help us to, to see what he has for us in it. So Genesis 38. It came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Harah. Judah saw there was a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah, and it was at Chazib that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and 
Her name was Tamar, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord Yahweh, so Yahweh took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, go in to your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of Yahweh, so he took his life also. And then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hurrah, the Adjulamite. It was told to Tamar, Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, here now, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come in to me? And he said, therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. And then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adjulamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of her place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who is by the road at Naniah? But they said, there has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. Now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. And behold, She is also with child by harlotry. And then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. Judah recognized them. And said, she is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not have relations with her again. It came about at that time she was giving birth, and behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth, one put out a hand 
And the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. Then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So his name was Perez. Afterward, his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. This is the very word of the living God. The Puritan, John Flavel, in a sermon titled, Navigation Spiritualized, has this memorable line. The providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can only be read backwards. The providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can only be read backward. We know that this is true in our lives. As Christians, we look back on our lives, either before or after our conversion, and we can see milestones and markers of God's grace, things that at the time we never would have known was the hand of God directing us, protecting us, providing for us. His sovereign sustaining of of all things and its particular kindnesses in the lives of those who love God are that sweet doctrine of providence. And in the moment of trial or difficulty, we often are not able to see what God is doing. But later, sometimes years later, We can look back and, like Flavel, say the providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can only be read backwards. Well, Genesis 38, I think, is a good example of that. And what I'd like to show you today is that Genesis 38 is not a a bad fish that needs to be thrown back into the, the obscure Old Testament sea of your Bible. But instead, it's a testimony to God's relentless providence to God's ability not only to take a bad situation that appears on all sides to be uh, ugly and awful, but to take every situation and to work it towards redemption, to accomplish all his purposes that he has in his mind for his people to protect them and to love them and to provide for them. Genesis 38 is a stellar example of God preserving his people even in a time when it seems like their very existence is in doubt. Genesis 38 is a a remnant kind of a moment, a time in, in God's revelation that instructs God's people, not only in the days of Genesis, but in a day like today, when evil is all around us, and we wonder, what could God possibly be doing right now? Well, let's listen to Genesis 38. And I think the key to understanding it is to read it backwards. In other words, let's move forward in redemptive history and find out who this character Judah, and our bias from reading this chapter is undoubtedly that he's a despicable character, that everybody in this chapter is just bad, right? I mean, everything that happened here, bad, bad, bad. Not one for bedtime stories, for Bible time with the kids, not, you know, this is... this. Yeah. So 
I think in order to gain that perspective, we need to read it backwards. So let's go to Revelation chapter five. Come with me. What becomes of this Judah and his family? Well, Revelation chapter five is a perplexing scene in heaven where there is a book with seals that needs to be opened and it vexes the apostle John so much that it brings him to great weeping and tears. In verse five, he's comforted by one of the elders around the throne of God who says to him, stop weeping, behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Verse six, I saw between the throne and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. In this eschatological scene of great glory of the slain lamb of God, Jesus is the one the only one worthy to open the the book and its seals, and he is the only one worthy to receive the the praise and honor and glory as the, the creatures cry out, worthy is the lamb to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And that slain lamb in the center of this glorious scene at the end of the climax of history is identified to us in Revelation chapter five, verse five, as the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Now that's remarkable. The greatest Judahite to ever live and the one who will bring all of history to its perfect culmination who will gather worshipers to fulfill a promise that God made in the earliest chapters of Genesis to crush the serpent's head, to raise up another Adam, to redeem his people, a promise he gave to his servant Abraham when he called him out from Ur as a moon worshiper and made him a covenant member of his family, God blessed Abraham and promised him a land, a people, and that that land and people would be a blessing to all the ends of the earth. That promise finds its fulfillment through the tribe of Judah in this great and climactic scene of Revelation 5. That's providence being read backwards. Now we could move closer to the incarnation of Jesus and see that this mention of Jesus as a Judahite is not a a tribe, a member of the tribe of Judah, is no small matter because in both genealogies in the Gospels, in Luke's Gospel, 
Judah is listed 24th in order from Adam, a noteworthy figure in the genealogy of our Lord. Likewise, Matthew puts Judah and Tamar in an even more prominent position in his genealogy, fourth in line after Adam, mentioning that this is the direct line that would bring about the Messiah, a line of kings, a line of rulers, a line whose most famous member before the Lord Jesus Christ would be King David, also of Judah's tribe. Similar to Judah, he wasn't a firstborn, was he? David was a younger brother, but he was chosen by God, and God used him to preserve this promise of Messiah that unfolds across the the history of the Bible. Now, to understand Genesis 38 and to continue to read Providence backwards, I want you to look with me at, at Genesis, at the end of the book of Genesis. Genesis 49. Working our way back to Genesis 38, and with the goal of of celebrating the Lord's table, Genesis 49 is, is Israel, or Jacob, his old name, and the, the last will and testament he gives to his 12 sons. Jacob wrestles with God. God changes Jacob from a rascal to a redeemed man. And Jacob becomes the the father of Israel, the inheritor of the promises from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Jacob has then 12 sons, right? Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, and Benjamin. 12 sons. And the question of the book of Genesis is, what will become of God's promise, of God's plan to redeem this fallen world? And the plan unfolds with with the story of Abraham, and then the near sacrifice of his son Isaac, and then Isaac's uh, prominence in the narrative, which moves towards Jacob and Esau, and Jacob being the chosen son. Well, at the end of Jacob's life, similar to reading one's last will and and testimony, but in a far more supernatural way, Israel gives a prophecy for all 12 of his sons. Rather than just the mere division of his property to the uh, primary son, instead he gives a telling of the destiny of all of his sons. And I want you to look at what the destiny of Judah was. Verse 8 of Genesis 49. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth 
white from milk. This entirely positive prophecy is a description of the destiny of Judah. Leadership and prominence among the other tribes and a scepter, a throne, a crown that will be exclusively on the Judahite tribe. It will find its its greatest manifestation in the history of Israel in the Old Covenant in King David and his throne and in his pursuit of God and in his shepherding of God's people Israel. But it finds its final and ultimate fulfillment in that unbreakable scepter that is in the hand of Jesus and Jesus alone. How did we get there with Judah? Genesis 38 is such an ugly tale. Or is it? You see, when we read Providence backwards, and when we listen to the agenda of a biblical text, as it sits in our Bibles, we can often be instructed in unguessable ways about what God is doing. Because there's far more here than, well, God used a really bad guy to accomplish great good. That's part of it. But as always, in God's providence, there's so much more that he's doing. So let's look at Genesis 38, a chapter that when liberal commentators read it, they say it's an insertion into the Genesis narrative. And you could even understand that because Genesis 37 is the start of Joseph's story. He, he, with his braggadocious dreams and his multicolored coat being his father's favorite, uh, tells these dreams to his brothers and they decide to get rid of him. It's Judah who has the plot to sell him. And and in Genesis 37, uh, Joseph is the one who gets thrown in a pit and then pulled out of the pit, sold to slave traders who then sell him, uh, the Mennonites sell him in Egypt to Potiphar to be a slave. Joseph is disappeared. Genesis 38 is a crucial, indispensable perfectly woven part of the Joseph story. Not an interpolation, not an interruption, not something a later editor amended, but instead it's perfectly woven into the Joseph story and into the story of the sons of Israel. You cannot understand the promise to Abraham, the promise of the seed to his children, the message of the book of Genesis, the redemption and continuance of God's covenant promise, apart from Judah's story. He is the first of Jacob's sons to realize God's providence, to watch God bring good from evil. And Genesis 38 tells us the story of Jacob's son Judah and shows us in answering a question that would be obvious to all the people who read Genesis in the first and original audience, the story of how Judah remains a son of favor, an inheritor of the blessing, how he becomes the one who holds on to the continuity of the promise and ultimately the line of Judah, a line of kings and the line of the promised Messiah. So let's look at Genesis 38. We'll look at it in three acts, like a play. It's lots of different scenes as it moves across, but let's look at it in three acts. Act one, verses one through 11, Judah's line in jeopardy. 
Act one, Judah's line in jeopardy. Look at verse one. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adjulamite whose name was Hurrah. Rather than some rude interruption of the Joseph narrative, Genesis 38 is answering a pressing question. A question that if we would have looked at the destiny of the, the brothers, the other sons of Israel, the first three brothers, because Judah is the fourth born brother, the first brother, Reuben, has already been disqualified. It's when you read in Israel's prophecy, Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. Jacob disqualifies his first son, Reuben, because of something he did in Genesis 35, verse 22, that was deemed unrighteous. He slept with his father's concubine, an unthinkable and unrighteous act that removes him from being the son of promise. The birth order would have had Reuben in the first place. All the readers of Genesis 38 know that because that happened in Genesis 35. That leaves two other sons who are in line for the promise to sustain God's promise to uh, his people, to Abraham, and that would be Simon and Levi. And in Genesis 49, they're deemed in Israel's prophecy as being disqualified as well. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their council. Let my glory be united. Let not my glory be united with their assembly because in their anger, they slew men. In their self-will, they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger for it is fierce and their wrath for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. The destiny of Simeon and Levi's tribe is also, like Reuben, disqualified because in Genesis 34, they, in an act of wrathful vengeance because their sister Dinah was raped, they kill an entire village of men that they trick to be circumcised in a, in a big ruse and they slaughter them wholesale. It was an unrighteous, it was an overzealous, overly retributive, brutal, violent act that Israel, Jacob would say, disqualified his second and third son from being the chosen sons. Back to Genesis 38 verse one. This chapter is seeking to answer the pressing question. If Reuben is out, if Simeon is out, if Levi is out, then what of Judah? And you may think, well, I know how this story goes because, Duncan, you read it to me earlier and I gotta go wash my mouth out later, my ears out, because Judah's bad guy, so he's out too, right? So is that what this chapter is saying? Is it saying that this is why Joseph is so key? Because Joseph does the right thing. Let's look a little closer. Act one, Judah's line is in jeopardy. It came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adjulamite whose name was Hurrah. Judah saw there was a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. Judah starts his family. 
as the camera pans from Joseph being hauled away in the caravan of slaves and gone forever, as far as his father's understanding is, now Judah, the the pressing question is, what of Judah? What will happen to Judah? What's Judah going to do? What kind of a man is he? And in his first act as a responsible adult, going to start his own family, he immediately commits a terrible sin. He marries a Canaanite woman, unnamed in our text except as the, the daughter of Shua. God, regardless of Judah's disobedience, blesses Judah with three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Three names just on their own and on the dignity or lack thereof are pretty easy to knock out of your baby name book, just so you know. Those are three that I think probably know on those three. The first son, the one who would carry the promise, is named Ur. And he's a result of intermarriage and intermingling and and living among the Canaanites. Judah's friend who is featured in his transaction gone wrong is an Ajulamite, another kind of Hittite or Canaanite. These are foreigners, and they were a plague to God's people from the very beginning of Abraham's journeys. One of the main concerns of the book of Genesis is endogamy, this importance of keeping the covenant within the covenant people. In other words, they weren't to intermarry with pagans. They weren't to mix their their dealings with these other nations that were dishonoring God. it, It was important to Abraham because he forbade his servant from finding a wife for Isaac among the Canaanites. It was important for Isaac because Isaac forbid Jacob from marrying a Canaanite. And Judah's father, Jacob, is the one that made that arduous journey all the way to Padan Aram to find Rachel. And so the precedent has been set to not intermarry Canaanites. And the first thing Judah does is finds Shua's daughter and lives among the Canaanites and has a best friend, Canaanite. But God still blesses him with three sons, or so it seems. Ur, Onan, and Shelah. But what happens to Judah's line? Verse 6. Judah takes a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar, also a Canaanite woman. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, verse 7, was evil in the sight of Yahweh, so Yahweh took his life. Well, tragedy has struck this family in a foreign place that has adopted foreign people into their family, and the firstborn son has been deemed evil by God for reasons that the text does not elaborate but that God says he's out, and God kills Ur. Before I came to seminary, I used to listen to sermons for fun. Now I do it professionally. But I remember there was one sermon that I would replay regularly by Donald Gray Barnhouse. He was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia from Uh, like 1930 to 1960. Amazing preacher. Had a gravelly voice. I remember listening to this recording over and over again. It was a sermon called Men Who God Struck Dead. Presbyterians sometimes smoke. 
men who God struck dead. And every time he said, he would hit the pulpit. And in the sermon was a survey of everyone who God directly kills in the Bible. Ananias and Sapphira. Uzzah for stabilizing the Ark of the Covenant. And it was a sermon all about the holiness of God. Don't mess with God because he is to be taken deadly seriously. In that sermon, of course, he talked about Ur and Onan, two sons of Judah who dishonored God in different ways, both deemed evil by God. And when Ur dies for being evil in God's sight, Judah then activates what needed to happen in a covenant family. Judah commands his second son, Onan, to marry his dead brother's wife. Now, that gives you, in 2022, the heebie-jeebies. But I need you to stop thinking like a 2022 person and come into Bible time. Because what Judah is doing there is absolutely righteous. It's the very word and will of God. It's a practice, though strange, ancient, and divine. It's called Leverite marriage. You can find it described and prescripted in the law in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. You're familiar with it already because you know the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is a is a romance and a drama all centered around the complexities of Leverite marriage, a, a, a practice of which we only partly understand today. But basically, it involved the protection of a helpless, innocent, endangered widow and the preservation of a family line of the one who died. That's why in the book of Ruth, things got tricky because the first right to marry Ruth belonged to someone who was not Boaz, but he wanted no part of it at the city gate, remember, because he knew that it would foul up his legalities, his inheritance with his own children, because he would be obligated to raise children with Ruth, and her kids would not be his kids. They would belong to the dead brother. That's exactly what's happening here. So rather than reading kind of modern concerns into this passage, listen to the agenda of the author. The agenda of the text is that this line has been cut off and now Ur is out. Onan has been given a responsibility by his father and by God himself to bring his dead brother's wife into his household to protect her, care for her, to raise children with her that will honor and inherit the blessings of his dead brother because the line that was promised to Abraham is now found in this Canaanite woman called Tamar and in Judah's family. And Onan doesn't do what's right. He doesn't want to endanger his own offspring. He wants to be selfish. And so he refuses to raise children with Tamar. And God sees it just as it is, absolutely despicable. And he kills Onan in verse 10. He did what was displeasing in the sight of Yahweh, so he took his life also. Now in verse 11, the final moment of our first act of Judah's line in jeopardy, 
His line is in more danger than it's ever been because his first son is dead, killed by God. His second son is dead, killed by God. And according to the practice of Leverite marriage, it is now his responsibility before God to give his third, last, only remaining son, Tamar, in marriage to him. Shelah is to marry her and raise Ur's line. That is God's prescription. That is God's will. That is God's desire. And Judah wants no part of it. If the question of the text is, is Judah morally fit to carry the promised seed and what's gonna become of this, this family line the idea here is to, to feel the drama of this text because one son is killed by God for unstated reasons. The other sin is exposed, flagrant and repeated sin in the Hebrew text, dishonoring to his marital responsibilities. He owed this to his dead brother, to his father, to his family line, and before God. And what Onan did was intentional, selfish, and dishonorable, and God put a stop to it. But Judah, the father, clearly blames Tamar a cursed woman in his mind. There is no way he's gonna let this lady, this unlucky lady, marry his last son. Just kind of reading the the situation, right? Everyone who marries her dies. Look, you get it. (laughs) Judah gets it too. And so Judah begins this story unconcerned about honoring God after losing his first two sons. He will not tell Shelah, his last and final son, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Instead, he tells her in a ruse, in trickery, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Judah had a responsibility a responsibility to God and to his family. And he's unconcerned and dishonest as his son Onan was. He's unwilling to endanger his last son. He blames Tamar, a cursed woman in his mind, unable to see the moral decay in his own boys. He blames his daughter-in-law. And sin can be so blinding to us, especially in a family. It makes fathers care more about their sons than righteousness. It prioritizes family over faith. Holiness takes second place to happiness. God's revealed will is put aside for a plan that seems right to man, but in the end is a way of death. Judah's unwilling to endanger his last son. He knows that this marriage is to be arranged as the patriarch's responsibility, but he's unwilling to obey God because the cost seems too great. He postpones and he put-offs, and he delays, never intending to obey God's design. He walks by sight and not by faith. He chose to follow God's path, God's way, God's truth when it came to his second son. But when it came to his precious and only son, he did not trust the results to God. He did not live a life of faith. God means every word that he says. 
but Judah did not. He lied to Tamar. He's not going to bring her back. This weak and compromising man is unwilling to tell his grieving and mistreated daughter-in-law that he will not do the righteous thing. And act one ends with a desperate woman. And that's act two. Act two, verses 12 to 23, is Tamar's desperate scheme. Tamar's desperate scheme. The motives exposed to us in verse 11 that Judah had to never marry off his final son to this unlucky lady are shown in verse 12 to everyone because it says, now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shears, Timnah, and he and his friend, Hira, the Adjulamite. Well, tragedy has struck this family yet again. Judah's wife, Shua's daughter, dies. And Judah has to go on with his life without her. And so he continues to engage in industry in his Canaanite land. He's a, he's a farmer and This text is full of references to the Hittite religion. The MacArthur Study Bible notes are very helpful in that regard. You can read those for yourself later. But all of this cultic prostitution, the the seasonal shearing of these sheep, uh, the involvement of of these sexual rituals are all part of the fertility uh, religion of the Canaanites. Judah has has, uh, compromised himself in this way. His daughter-in-law knows the Hittite practices and She knows she's being dishonored because she's been told about the promise to Abraham. She was brought into this covenant family. She knows about the the sacrifice almost of Isaac. She knows about the, the promise in the family line, and she knows that she has been left out. And so she fools Judah, dressing herself like a cultic prostitute along the way. And Judah, already morally compromised, succumbs. Judah, just like Reuben, sexually immoral. The foul transaction goes on. He didn't happen to have a goat with him. And so Tamar wisely scrupulously says, what pledge shall you give me? Verse 17. And she says, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Wily lady. She takes his staff, probably marked with his tribal designations. She takes his cord, likely a a valuable kind of necklace and his signet ring. Don't think medieval times. Think a medallion on that necklace. These are the marks of this man of significance, this patriarch, this son of Abraham. She's going to take those possessions as a security deposit. It's like holding on to someone's driver's license at the mini golf place. Kind of. Look, MacArthur called me this morning. I would have come up with a better version. I didn't have, it's an illustration, okay? She, she hangs onto his credit card and his driver's license. And he says, I'm going to pay you back. Well, she gets pregnant. 
And here's where you need to listen to the text rather than so often our tendency in an Old Testament passage is to moralize, moralize. We let the killer bees come in. Don't be like Judah. Don't be like Tamar. I don't think it's necessary for me to tell you dressing up and pretending to be a prostitute for your father-in-law is bad. That's not the agenda of this text. I can take you to other passages to show you that. But that's not what this text is trying to teach you. So that Sunday school moralizing flattens the text and doesn't listen to the agenda of the author. The point is not prostitutes are bad, Judah's bad, everybody's bad, but look, the Messiah still comes. There's more happening here if you listen to the text. She asks for a guarantee, a deposit, and he gives it to her. And then his hapless friends become somewhat of a comedic scene in verses 20 through 23. Judah sends the payment by way of the Ajulamite. It's probably a good job for an Ajulamite to go wander the countryside with a goat under his arm looking for a prostitute they ran into a while back. Awkward. And he can't find her because she was, it was, it was, she was hiding. It was, uh, she was in disguise. And he asks the men of the place, where's the temple prostitute? It was by the road at Anayim. And they say, there's been no temple prostitute here. Well, rather than keeping walking around the Canaanite countryside asking this same awkward question, he decides to go back to Judah. Still goat in arm. And says, I couldn't find her. And Judah says, well, I tried to pay. It's fine. I love the line 23. Let her keep them, otherwise we will become a laughing stock. Yeah, you think? And so, goat, goat full he left, goat full he returns. And the scene fades. Act three, verses 24 to 30. Judah's turning point. Judah's turning point. Now it was about three months later that Judah was informed. Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot and behold, she is also a child by harlotry. And then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Whoa. Not only now, do we have Judah displayed in as bad of light as Reuben in his sexual immorality? But now we see Judah has a taste for violence on the level of Simeon and Levi. Now, the punishment for adultery in the old covenant was the death of the adulterous parties, both woman and man. That is not what Judah said here. And it wasn't an Israelite practice to burn people by way of execution. This cruelty, this immolation of, uh, is more of, of, of Canaanite origin. And so Judah undoubtedly is thinking, well, this is bad, but this solves my problem. This keeps Shelah safe, and now I can get rid of this foreign woman who's been such a plague on my family, not realizing that he and his sons are the true plague on his family. And so he says, with cruel vindictiveness, bring her out and let her be burned. And so as they drag 
Tamar out to be executed. Wily Tamar. More concerned about doing what God wanted done, carrying on this family line than her own covenant family members, her adopted family was. She, in her wily way, says, I'm with child by the man to whom these things belong. She's got receipts. Whose signet ring, whose cord, whose staff? And I love verse 26. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Shelah. His sin has been exposed. His failure to do the right thing is now exposed. And to his credit, he owns up to it. I mean, the moment was there. The pressure produced it, but he owns it. This reminds me of that famous scene in King David's life after his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet finds out what David has done to to murder her husband and and cover it up and bring uh, Bathsheba into his palace and household. And Nathan goes and confronts King David and and tells David, there's a story I have to tell you, a parable, a, a man who had countless sheep live next door to this this sweet, precious family that only had one little lamb. It was like a household pet for them. And the rich guy saw that he was having visitors come to town, so he took his neighbor's one little lamb and he killed it and made rack of ribs and mint on it and roasted it. I'm adding a little, but still. And this story enrages King David. And he says, bring that man to me. I'll do worse to him. And before he can even kind of finish all that he's gonna pour out of vengeance on this crooked, depraved, rich man who stole something that did not belong to him, who took and who uh, robbed from this poor man, Nathan looks at King David with prophetic boldness and says, ish, you are that man. And David is cut. And it leads to David's repentance. Similarly, as he holds his staff, his familiar staff, and his signet ring, and his cord, his mind goes back to the day that he gave his daughter, his son, Tamar, to be his wife, and his son's funeral, and Tamar to be married to Onan, and Onan's unrighteousness leading to his death, and him unwilling to sacrifice his son to give her to Tamar, and that transaction on that dark Canaanite road, and it all comes flashing back, and Judah says, she is more righteous than I. And it's at this point in Genesis that everything changes for Judah. Though he was sinful like his Brothers, and like his sons, the exposing of his sin changes the, director, the trajectory of Judah's life. 
The story ends with a blessing. He does the honorable thing finally because his hand has been forced. He doesn't have relations with her again. It wouldn't be right in in Hebrew Leverite marriage to marry this girl, but he does protect her. He keeps her in the family. And she's pregnant, not just with one son, not just one child, and not just one son, but with twin boys. How many sons did Judah have when this story started? Three, you're right. How many sons does Judah have when the story concludes? Three. God sets everything right here. And he even replays that famous scene of Jacob and Esau in the wrestling of the twins and the reversal of the birth order. God is still at work in Judah's life because Judah recognized his own unrighteousness. And I think I can show that to you, prove that to you, and land this plane to talk about the Lord's Supper. Go to Genesis 44. Joseph, who's not all flowers either, kind of snot-nosed and privileged and favorited by his father, has spent his entire life in Egypt. So much so that he apparently at least pretends to practice divination in verse 15 of chapter 44. He's involved his brothers in this massive ruse He's hidden some of the palace treasure in the youngest brother Benjamin's bag and he's going to use that to leverage to steal this brother away from his father, away from his brothers and send them home. And this is their second trip already and, and Joseph's schemes are, are really being, uh, they're, they're quite a lot. And Judah sees that all this, This scheming, he doesn't know it's scheming yet, but he sees what's happening is going to bring pain to his father. And it's here in this climactic speech in the book of Genesis in chapter 44 that Judah rises up and shows that he has been a changed man. Look at his speech in verse 16. What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak and how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. But Joseph says, far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. And Judah gives this incredible speech in verse 18. Oh, my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears. Do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? We have, my Lord, we have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead, so he alone is left of his mother. His father loves him. On and on he gives this speech, telling Joseph, pleading with Joseph, Don't do this. It will, it will kill our father. Verse 29, if you take this one also from me and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. That's Israel's words. And so what does Judah do? Verse 32, for your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? Who is this guy? This isn't the conniving 
uh, endangered Judah who wanted at all costs to disobey God and protect his one and only son. He has experienced what it was like to lose a son. He's experienced what it was like to have his, his last son threatened in his mind. And now, rising up as the leader of his brothers, he offers up himself for Benjamin. This kind of sacrifice, this kind of willingness to do the hard thing shows that Judah is morally fit to carry the promised seed. We don't write Judah off here. Instead, we see Judah beginning this story unconcerned and dishonest, violent and sexually immoral. But now he's turned into someone who understands what it's like to see God's providence. And in Genesis 44, Judah intercedes and offers himself a substitute for Benjamin. And it's this speech that breaks Joseph's heart. Because Joseph, in chapter 45, falls down in tears, dismisses everyone but his brothers from the room, embraces them, and finally is able to say, no more games, no more trickery, I see it now. God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. It is Joseph who will say in chapter 50, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Where did he learn this theology of providence from? He learned it from Judah. Judah broke his brother's heart in the moment of that dawning realization that everything in his life had happened as a result of the providence of God. Judah swore to his own hurt. He trusted the sovereignty of God, no longer scheming, willing to lay his life down. A reminder that one day his tribe would have a righteous king, a man after God's own heart, who would have an even greater son, a king like no other, who would sit in David's throne and rule and reign forever. A perfectly righteous Judean who would not just offer to lay his life down, but would be a sacrifice for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. Judah, becomes the father of David, becomes the father of our Lord, willing to lay his life down just like that great Judahite would for us. And that's why we come to this table. Reminded that God's providence is always at work. Reminding us to fix our minds and hearts on God's wise, gracious, and sovereign ways to have the assurance that God will indeed work everything together for his children's good, that his grace can transform a man no matter how vile that man might be, and use even the dark situations in our lives to know that God's sovereign purposes will not be thwarted. Which brings us to this table a table that reminds us of the sacrifice of that great lion of the tribe of Judah.